knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Tonight we're going to begin a study on one of the most uh, remarkable and significant characters in the Bible. We're going to start studying through the life of Joseph. Uh, Joseph is definitely one of my favorite Bible characters, and I've been looking forward to getting to this section in Genesis ever since we started the book. Now remember our outline of Genesis, really it started focusing on four major events. We have uh, the creation, the fall, the flood, and then you know nations that were you know separated during the time of the Tower of Babel. And then it shifts gears to focusing on four people. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now finally the final person that we'll see here in Genesis is Joseph. And so we have from chapters 37 through 50 looking at his life. And as you can see, it's a lot of the emphasis of this book is focused on this one man. Um, And there are many wonderful things that we're going to see with Joseph's life. But one of the things that I'm going to continually bring up as we go through something that we'll see every single chapter as we look at his life is that Joseph is a picture or a type of Christ. Um, We're going to see a lot of parallels between his life and the life of Jesus. And uh, it's going to be exciting to see those things. James Boyce said this, speaking of Joseph, he was loved and hated, favored and abused, tempted and trusted, exalted and abased. Yet at no point in the 110-year life of Joseph did he ever seem to get his eyes off of God or cease to trust Him. Adversity did not harden his character. Prosperity did not ruin him. He was the same in private as in public. He was a truly great man. I think that's a great description of kind of what we're going to be seeing here in Joseph's life. He definitely was a great man who deals with a lot of significant hardships in his life, but he does it in a godly way. Actually, if you look through Scripture, there are only three individuals in the Bible, really nothing negative is said about them. Obviously, Jesus being the one who was sinless, but we also have Daniel and Joseph. Uh, And so these are all three individuals that we learn a lot of positive examples from. As we've seen through the book of Genesis so far, we've seen a lot of examples, but they haven't been very positive. Abraham had a lot of problems. Isaac had a lot of problems. Jacob had the most of all. Uh, And so when we come to Joseph, we're going to see lots of positive things that he does and how he responds to the circumstances that he faces. Now, Before we start chapter 37, I want to remind you of some of the messed up things in Jacob's family because it sets the stage for what we're going to see happen to Joseph from this family here 
in chapter 37. And if you just jump straight into this chapter, which a lot of people do because they think, oh, I want to learn about Joseph. And they don't have the backdrop of what has transpired leading up to this. And they think, wow, I can't believe that his brothers would respond like that. And what's going on in this family? Well, we've seen a lot of what's going on in this family. And I just want to remind you of why things are the way that they are. So as we see what happens here in chapter 37, it makes a little more sense to us. So One of the big things that we're going to see here in chapter 37 is that Jacob favors Joseph more than all of the other sons that he has, and it's going to cause some problems for sure. But I want you to remember why Jacob favors Joseph more than the other 11 sons that he has. And it really starts with the messed up marriage life that Jacob has, because remember, Jacob went to marry Rachel. He wanted Rachel. He was told he could marry Rachel. He served for seven years for Rachel, and it said it was for like a day to him. He loved her so much. He was so excited to marry her. And then on the wedding night, Rachel's dad, Laban, does the switcheroo on him. He's this deceiver. And instead of giving him Rachel, who he worked for, Rachel, who he loved, he gives the oldest one, Leah. And now he has Leah, who he doesn't want, who he doesn't love. And Laban says, oh, you know, just serve me for seven more years and you can have Rachel as well. And so now he's stuck with two women, the the one he worked for, the one he loved, the one he wanted, and the one he didn't love and the one he didn't want. And it brought problems. Obviously, there's one he loves and one he doesn't. And the one that he loves has a problem. She is barren. And the one that he doesn't love? She doesn't have that problem. She bears Jacob six sons and one daughter. And with each child, she thinks, surely now Jacob will love me. No. All right, well, maybe now he'll love me. No. And over and over again, she's hoping for love. She's hoping that you know her husband's going to love her, but he doesn't. He never wanted her to begin with. She was the unwanted, unloved wife, and that never changed for her. But yet she bore all these children for him. Well, As the loved wife, Rachel, sees this, she's so unhappy that she's barren. She says, you know what? We're going to have a baby competition. I might not be able to have any children, but my maid, Bilhah, she can. So Jacob, you have children with her. And so he has two children with Bilhah. And Leah says, I'm not going to get, you know, outdone here. I have a maid as well. And so Jacob, you can, you know, have children with my maid. And so he has two sons with that maid as well. And so he has six sons with Leah. And then he has four sons with the other two maids. And now he's got ten sons. But yet, the one that he loves, the one that he wants, she's never been able to bear him children yet. And I want you to imagine something in all of this. You know, Jacob's sons, like any child, they're very perceptive. They recognize, you know what, you, dad, don't love mom. You know, you don't love my mom, whether it be Leah or whether it be one of the maids. You know, you don't love her like you love Rachel. You know, and and so they would have seen that. They would have recognized that reality and, and that would have caused some problems within the family. But the problems grew when finally Rachel gets pregnant and she bears the very first son that she's able to have for Jacob and they name him Joseph. And right away, When Joseph is born, he becomes Jacob's favorite. The woman that I love, the woman that I always wanted. I didn't want these other wives. I just kind of, the situation brought about all of this. The one that I truly wanted now has borne me a son, and he is my favorite son. 
And just like they knew that dad didn't like their mom like they liked Rachel, they definitely now saw dad loves Joseph more than he loves me. Well, Rachel gets pregnant again. She has a second son. She names him Benjamin. But sadly, there's complications during the pregnancy and she dies while giving birth to Benjamin. And so I want you to think now, Joseph and Benjamin are now the only connection that Jacob has to the wife he loved and now lost. And so now there's probably an even greater increase in his love towards, especially Joseph and Benjamin. But, you know, hey, these are the the only connection now that I have to the wife that I no longer have. So this whole messed up marriage situation definitely influenced Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph. But there's one other thing I want us to remember before we jump in here to chapter 37. And I want to remind you of some of the things that we've seen from Joseph's brothers. Because as we come to chapter 37, we're going to think, man, these guys are cruel. They're heartless. How do you do this? Well, let's not forget some of the stuff that we've already seen them do. Back in chapter 34, Jacob's daughter Dinah, she was raped. And the brothers respond in a pretty extreme way. Simeon and Levi, they convinced everybody in that city to circumcise themselves. And they have all these reasons for it. I won't get into it because we did then. But they do it for one purpose. They're going to be in pain. And when they are, we're going to go kill all of them. And that's what they do. They kill every single man in the city in retaliation for their sister being raped. But now the other brothers get in on the, you know, the whole thing. They come in and they steal everything in the city and take it for themselves. And then they enslave all the women and children who are there who have no husbands anymore because they just killed them all. This, these are the brothers that Joseph is going to be dealing with. Now in this chapter, we already have mass murderers in here. We already have people who are enslaving people. We have thieves. You know, these are the kind of guys that are on the stage here in chapter 37. And I want to keep that in mind. It shouldn't be a shock with some of the things they do, considering some of the stuff we've already seen them do. But we also see the oldest, Reuben, in chapter 35. He has an affair with Bilhah, Rachel's maid that she gave to Jacob to marry and have two children with. Well, Reuben has an affair with her, uh, and so now he is an adulterer. Uh, and, you know, that's what we see from these brothers leading up here to chapter 37. So it's a pretty messed up family. We see some of the reasons why there's favoritism through that. But we also see there's a lot of cruelty, anger issues, some problems with brutality with Joseph's sons. And so keeping all that in mind, now we come to chapter 37 And we see what transpires here because of Jacob's favoritism to Joseph. Starting verse 1 says this. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. 
So Joseph is now 17 years old. So, you know, we've just kind of jumps on the scene here. He's already 17, but now he is the second youngest. The only one younger than him is Benjamin. Some of the quite significantly older since there's 10 children between them. But notice we see him. He's out with the brothers of Bilhah and Zilpah. So there's four brothers. Both of those women had two sons. And so he's with his four brothers from the maids that Jacob had sons with. And as he's there with them and they're feeding the flocks, he comes back and reports to his dad. And he has a bad report concerning his brothers. And we're not told you know, what it was that was bad, whether it was their behavior or their, their work ethic or whatever it was. And we shouldn't be surprised that there's a bad report considering some of the things that we have seen with these brothers. But um, as we're going to see in verses 3 and 4, I believe that the reason that Joseph even has this role of reporting to his dad is because his dad has actually given him that role. He's asked him to look after and see what's going on with his brothers. Um, and the reason I believe this is because what Jacob gives to Joseph in verse 3, notice what we're told. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. So it's very clear here, Israel loves Joseph more than the rest of his children. And we already looked at some of the reasons why, but he doesn't try to hide it. I mean, if you talk to some parents, they, they might secretly say, yeah, well, I might favor such and such over the other, but I'm definitely not going to show it. I mean, my mom growing up, you know, it was quite obvious she favored me, but she tried her best to not ever show it. I was the baby, you know, she loved and she was like, you know, she didn't want to, anyone to know that. And, you know, I think most parents are, are trying to keep that hidden. If that's in there, some parents don't have it, others do. They don't want the kids to know. Jacob doesn't seem to care at all. You know, he is doing something that clearly is demonstrating that he loves Joseph more than the other sons. And notice what he does. He gives Joseph a tunic of many colors. Now, all of us who grew up in Sunday school heard the story of Joseph. You hear the story of Joseph and the coats of many colors. Uh, and we kind of just get this idea of, well, you know, he was given this great colorful coat and, and that's how dad showed him love and his brothers were jealous because of it. But really, there, there's much more to it than that. First of all, it wasn't a coat. It was a tunic. And there's some significance to that. And the other thing I find very interesting is, first of all, the word many is not even in the original uh, Hebrew. So it's just coat of colors. But that Hebrew word translated colors, I don't really know why they translated it colors. It's kind of very interesting why they did that, because the word literally means of the palm of the hand to the sole of the feet. The Revised Standard Version of the Bible translates it more literally. It says, he made him a long robe with sleeves. You see, the most important thing about this tunic is not that it's colorful, and it could have been very colorful, but that's irrelevant. That's not the point. The point of the tunic was the fact that it was long-sleeved and it was long-stretching down to the feet. And the reason for that is because at that time, you have two different types of tunics that people wore. You can see here from this picture, you have those who were the workers, those who would have been those in the field keeping, you know, watch over the, the sheep. They would have had a short sleeve tunic that would have only kind of come down to their knees. Why? Because if you're working, 
You want to have your arms free. You want to have your legs free. That was a working man's tunic. But if you had a full-sleeved tunic that went all the way down to your feet, that represented something very different. That was more of the manager man. That was the overseer person. I'm not getting my hands dirty. I'm not getting this tunic dirty. This tunic isn't made to work. This tunic is made to oversee those who work. You know, and we have the same type of thing today, as you can see with the next picture. You know, the manual labor workers, they wear clothes for the most part that they can ruin. And oftentimes bosses have these three-piece suits that they don't want to, you know, get dirty. You know, we have the white collar, you know, bosses versus the blue collar workers. You know, we have the same kind of thing where what we wear reveals our status. And in the same way with tunics, what you wore was a revealer of the status that you held. And so having a tunic that stretched all the way down to your hands and to your feet revealed a status of authority versus the tunic that were short-sleeved and down to your knees revealed a status of worker. And so this is one of the biggest things that we often miss when we just think, well, it was a colorful tunic, that's so great. No, it was more than that. The fact that, that his dad gave him this shows that I am giving authority to you, Joseph, over your brothers. You're going to manage them. You're going to oversee them. And we see that through the rest of this chapter of Joseph doing that. And I want you to remember now, Joseph's only 17 years old. Some of his brothers could have been all as much as maybe 20 years older than him. You know, and so imagine having your little brother overseeing you, managing you. You're out there working and he's just watching. You know, how difficult that would be. But dad, who favors Joseph, says, you know what? I'm putting you into this role of managing over the rest of the sons. But you know what? There's also something else about this tunic that many commentators believe would have demonstrated Joseph's desire, or sorry, Jacob's desire ultimately would be to give Joseph the inheritance and the birthright. I'm putting you in charge. I'm giving you authority because my ultimate desire is for you to be the one that I give the inheritance and the birthright to. Now, as we've seen already through the book of Genesis, the inheritance and the birthright goes to the firstborn, which in Jacob's case, that would be Reuben. But Jacob could be thinking, you know, Reuben's the firstborn of Leah, but he's not the firstborn of Rachel. My true firstborn that I actually love the most is the firstborn of Rachel, and that is Joseph. And so he has this mindset of, I'm giving you this, and this demonstration to your brothers that you have authority and that ultimately I am going to give you the inheritance, which is what happens. So this isn't just kind of speculation. This is what's going to take place. Joseph is going to be the one to receive the birthright and receive the inheritance over Reuben, who in that culture was the one who was supposed to get it. In First Chronicles chapter 5, we have the genealogy of Reuben. And notice what is said. Verse 1, now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, remember we looked at that in chapter 35, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to birthright. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. So Joseph's going to get it. We're going to see at the end of Jacob's life, he's going to give it to Joseph. And Joseph's actually going to say, you know what, don't worry about giving it to me. Give it to my sons instead. But Jacob wants to pass it on to Joseph and his descendants. And that's exactly 
what's going to happen. And so by giving this tunic to Joseph, Israel is really revealing three major things to the other sons. First, I love Joseph more than the rest of you. You know, that would have been a clear thing that would have been there. Second, I'm giving Joseph authority over the rest of you. And third, I'm going to give the inheritance to Joseph, not to Reuben, who all of you would expect to get it. Now, try and imagine how you would feel if you were the younger brother. If you knew, hey, dad loves our younger brother more than he loves me. Dad is giving the younger brother authority over me, and dad is giving the inheritance to him that belongs to me or belongs to another brother that should get it, in my opinion. Now, naturally, that would probably be something that would sadden us, that would hurt us, that would get us upset, angry, frustrated. And if you're going to vent that frustration, if you have any siblings, it's probably not going to be towards dad as much as it is towards the favored son. Yeah, he's kind of the one who's going to suffer the brunt of, you know, the anger, the frustration that you have because, you know, he's the one getting favored and you're so upset about that reality. And the likelihood is you're probably going to lash out a bit against your brother. And that's what we're going to see definitely from Joseph's brothers. And notice verse four tells us how Joseph's brothers respond to their dad's favoritism. It says, but when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So their response, the the tunic is given, they see dad's favoritism, and they hate their brother because of it, and they cannot speak peaceably to him. Now it's important to note that Joseph didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything to deserve this hatred. He didn't do anything to deserve the feelings that they had. It's not his fault his dad loved him more. It's not his fault his dad gave him this tunic. He wasn't asking for this. So he didn't do anything to deserve it, but yet he's going to suffer the brunt of the anger and frustration that the brothers have because of ultimately Jacob's decision to favor Joseph. The ultimate person who was not wise in all of this, who did things that he shouldn't have done, was Jacob. He was not being a good father in how he favored Joseph, but now Joseph is going to be the real one to suffer through this. Let's see what happens next. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There there we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Here we see something wonderful happens to Joseph. He's a 17-year-old young man, and God reveals something to him about the future in this dream. 
And so he goes to sleep one night and, you know, all of us dream, but obviously this one was quite significant. And, and he, he sees this and he's so excited about it. And he goes to his brothers. Oh, I want to tell you this dream that I have. Now, for those of you who have older siblings, you realize this wasn't the wisest thing for Joseph to do. Joseph's brothers already hated him. They never said anything nice to him. They knew that he was favored by their father. He was given the tunic and the authority over them. So telling them this dream, which seems to be pretty clear of what it's saying, wasn't the most wise thing for Joseph to do. But, you know, maybe he's just excited. Hey, I want to tell you I had this great dream. Let me, let me share it with you. You know, I have an older brother and sister, and growing up, you know, as I mentioned, um, my mom definitely favored me. My dad favored my sister. But when it came to my brother and I, my dad was big in sports. My brother wasn't very good, and I was compared to him. And so there was favoritism there. And my brother would take it out on me because he was mad that my dad didn't care that he got straight A's, uh, and he just cared that, you know, I could do well in sports. And so, you know, he was the oldest, four years older than me. And we get in a lot of fights, and a lot of that was kind of from this reality that he felt, hey, why is it that, you know, dad approves of you more than he approves of me. And so if I had a dream like this, I'm pretty sure I'd realize if I tell my brother Nathan this dream or Julie, they're not going to be too pleased about bowing down to me. And so I can understand that they wouldn't like to hear that. And I might just keep that dream to myself. So Joseph tells his brothers and after the brothers hear the dream, we're told they hated him even more. So they already hated him a lot. And now their hatred towards him just increases after they hear this dream, and they understand what the dream meant, and we see that through what they say to him. They say, shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? Because the dream is, hey, there's all these sheaves of wheat, and mine rises up in the middle, and all you guys, your sheaves, bow down to mine. And they realize, so what are you trying to say? That you're going to reign over us? That you're going to have dominion? That we're going to bow down to you, Joseph? They, they understood what he thought the dream meant and what they thought the dream meant. And they were already upset by the fact that you've been given authority by dad. Do you think now we're going to bow down to you someday? So they hate him even more. Now, I think under normal circumstances, if your sibling had a dream like this, you know, you would either laugh it off or you'd think maybe you're a little crazy and need to be in a padded room or you, know, you might have all sorts of different thoughts, but probably hatred wouldn't be the initial one of like, wow, you think you're so great, I'm going to bow to you. And you might just kind of think, well, that's never going to happen. But yet, because there was already this hatred and already these desires and these hurts and these feelings of fear because of what, you know, the favoritism of Joseph and the authority that his dad had given to him, they're probably thinking maybe this is something that's possible. And they really resented that this dream was there. Uh, and so they respond very negatively when, you know, probably in most situations it wouldn't have been this harsh. Well, Joseph has another dream. This time he dreams something a little more. He dreams that the sun and the moon plus 11 stars bow down to him. And he doesn't just tell this one to his brothers. He also tells it to his father. And you might think, okay, Joseph, after the last time, it didn't go so well. They hate you even more. Maybe keeping this dream to yourself would have been wise. But yet, you know, he wants to tell people and, you know, telling your dad, fair enough, you know, because now dad's a part of it. You know, the sun and moon, father, mother, 11 stars, all your brothers, they're all going to bow down. And just like before, 
people got what the dream was, his dad actually rebukes him and says, what is this dream you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? I mean, it's one thing for you to think your brothers are going to bow down, but you think me, your dad's going to bow down to you? He rebukes him, thinking that's never going to happen. That's, that's not how it works. We're told that Joseph's brothers respond to this second dream with envy, but even though Israel's upset, we're told that he kept the matter in mind. Two dreams have come. He realizes maybe God is seeking to speak. Maybe he's revealing something about the future. And so he wasn't so happy about the idea of him bowing down to his own son, but yet he doesn't just dismiss it. And the brothers, they just get envious. Hatred and envy are two of the things that these dreams bring between them and Joseph. Well, as we're going to see throughout the next 13 chapters, God was speaking through these dreams. God is revealing the future for Joseph and for his relationship with his brothers. Uh, And these dreams are going to be very important for Joseph to hold on to in some very difficult circumstances that he's going to suffer through. Let's see what verses 12 through 17 said. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it's well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out to the valley of Hebron, or from the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So here we see, notice the difference here. Joseph in the favored role with his nice big tunic. He's sitting at home while the brothers are out working. He's with dad at home, not working, while his brothers are in Shechem. They're in Hebron. At home, the brothers are at Shechem serving, watching over dad's flocks. And dad asks Joseph, you know what? Please go and see if your brothers and the flocks are doing well and bring back word to me. And of all the places that his brothers could be where it would bring worry to dad would be Shechem. Shechem's the city Dinah was raped in. Shechem's the city that two of the brothers killed every single man there. Joseph... Oh, Jacob owned land there, and now he has cattle there, and his brothers are there. And I'm sure he's thinking, retribution? You know, people could come back and try to hurt us. So, hey, Joseph, can you just go see how things are going out there? Last time we were there, it got real messy with your brothers. And so go see what's taking place and come bring back word to me. And so Joseph willingly goes to Shechem. His brothers aren't there. He's walking through the field. Someone asks, what are you looking for? Hey, where are my brothers? They've gone to Dothan, which is about 15 miles west. He goes to Dothan, and we're told that he finds his brothers there. Well, now things are going to get really bad for Joseph. Verse 18. Now, when they, speaking of the brothers, saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what, his, what will become of his dreams. Joseph's brothers greatly envied him. 
They hated him. And we see so much so that they see him coming. And maybe they're easily able to spot him because of his tunic. And he's coming towards them. And they come up with a plan to kill him. And notice the connection with their hatred of Joseph and his dreams. The first thing they say is, look, this dreamer is coming. And now they have their plan. Come, therefore, let us kill him and then throw him into some pit. And then we'll just tell people that some beast devoured him. And we shall see what will become of his dreams. The dreamer who thinks we're going to bow down to him, yeah, we're going to stop that right now. We're not bowing down to anybody who's dead. We're going to kill him. We're going to stop those dreams. We're going to stop that mindset right here. And so they are so hateful and they're so uh, upset over the concept of what Joseph thought was going to happen with these dreams. But notice that the brothers, they didn't accept the authority of Joseph over them. And they envied him so much that they plot to kill him. And here is one of the ways that Joseph is a picture of Jesus. You see, Joseph's brothers are are really a picture of the, the religious leaders. Because remember, the religious leaders, they envied Jesus. And they did not want Jesus to have authority over them. And that desire not to have him as their authority. And that envy and hatred of him ultimately brings the religious leaders to plot to kill Jesus. In Matthew 21, 23, we're told, Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders and the people confronted him as he was teaching. And notice what they say, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? This was one of the big issues. This authority that Jesus is saying, I have over you because I am the Messiah. And they say, no, you don't have authority over us. They did not want to accept that authority. Another reason the religious leaders plotted to kill Jesus was because of envy. When Pontius Pilate wanted to release Jesus, he says something about the religious leaders in Mark 15.10. He says this, for he knew that the chief priests had handed Jesus over because of envy. It was obvious to him. That's the reason they want this guy dead. And so they have a problem with Jesus' authority. They envy Jesus. They hate him. And so the religious leaders hate Jesus for some of the same reasons that Joseph's brothers hate Joseph. They hate the authority. They envy him. And they're plotting to kill him. And they basically say, Joseph thinks we're going to bow down to him. Well, that's never going to happen once he's dead. I find that interesting because the religious leaders say something similar to Jesus. Jesus is calling himself the Messiah. He thinks that we're going to worship and bow down to him. They say something to Jesus when he's on the cross, Matthew 27, 41 and 42. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others himself. He cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The religious leaders are saying, oh, if Jesus is really the Messiah, if he's really the son of God, well, then let him just come down off the cross. He saved other people, supposedly. How come he doesn't just save himself if he's truly the son of God? What they're saying is he can't be the son of God as he's dead. Kind of like Joseph's brothers, we're not bowing down to him if he's dead. Jesus isn't going to be the Messiah if we kill him. 
So we see how Joseph's brothers plotting to kill Joseph, even though he's innocent because of their envy and hatred, is a picture of the religious leaders who plotted to kill Jesus because of envy and hatred and authority, even though Jesus was innocent as well. So Joseph's brothers are planning on killing Joseph when he gets to them. But not all the brothers are on board with this plan. The oldest, Reuben, he has a different view of what they should do. Let's see what Reuben says in verse 21. But Reuben heard it as in the plan to kill Joseph, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So as Joseph's brothers are plotting this death of Joseph, hey, I got the plan. Here we go. We're going to kill him, and then we'll just cast his corpse into some pit, and we'll say a wild animal ate him. Reuben comes along and says, whoa, 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 let's change this up. Let's not kill him and cast him into a pit. Let's just let him live and cast him into a pit, and then he can just die in the pit. You know, and at first you think, well, yeah, you're just a jerk. You know, now you're just going to have him suffer in the pit instead of killing him. But we're told that Reuben has a reason for doing this. He has his own plan. Their plan is to kill Joseph. Reuben's plan is actually to try and protect Joseph. But he goes about it in kind of a stealth way of, oh, yeah, I'm on board with killing him. But let's just do it by throwing him in a pit and let him die in there. But notice at the end, we're told he planned later to get Joseph out of the pit and bring him back to his father. So his thought was, hey, let's throw him in a pit. We'll all leave. We'll just let him starve down there. And when everybody leaves, I'm going to come back. I'm going to get him out of that pit. I'm going to bring him back to dad. So Reuben, the oldest, does not want to kill Joseph. Everybody else except for Benjamin, who's not a part of this because he's still at home, does want to kill Joseph. Now, Reuben's plan to try and save Joseph, it's admirable. But notice he's not willing to stand up to his brothers in order to do it. Reuben's not willing to say, well, wait a second, guys, killing our brother is wrong. It's extreme. I know that you hate him. I know, you know, I got the problem saying, I'm going to lose my inheritance. I, I get why we don't like him, but killing him is not acceptable. He's not willing to stop them. Reuben wanted to be merciful to Joseph, but he also wanted to please his brothers who hated Joseph. This failure to do the right thing meant that the good Reuben wanted to do in saving Joseph would never happen. This is another way that Joseph is a picture of Jesus. Just like Joseph's brothers wanted Joseph dead, the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. And just like Reuben is sympathetic to Joseph, wants to try to find a way for Joseph not to be killed by his brothers, Pontius Pilate is sympathetic to Jesus, wants to find a way to keep Jesus from dying. He doesn't want to give him to be crucified. Pontius Pilate, though, just like Reuben, they weren't willing to stand up. Reuben's not willing to stand up against his brothers. Instead, he, he wants to appease him. And he says, oh, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. Remember what Pontius Pilate does to appease the religious leaders? Let's not crucify him. Let's just brutally scourge him. Uh, maybe then you'll just let him go free. He doesn't deserve death. So instead of saying, no, I'm not killing him. And Pilate had the power to do that. I, I, we're not going to have this happen. He says, well, I'm going to try to appease you and get away with not killing Jesus at the same time. Same with Reuben. I'll try to appease my brothers and get away with not having Joseph die at the same time. But 
the good intentions of Reuben and Pilate do not save Joseph or Jesus because they're not willing to stand up to the crowd. Sadly, Reuben and Pilate were more interested in pleasing others than in doing what's right. And I think this is something that we often struggle with. We are often like the Reuben and the Pilate where we have good intentions, but we want to do what's right, but yet our desire to please people gets in the way. Oh, I, I want to please the crowd. And so how can I please the crowd and do what's right all at the same time? Well, oftentimes you can't. Oftentimes you have to just say, you know what? I am going to choose to do what's right. And in doing so, I will not please the crowd. They're not going to be happy with me. They might even be violent to me, which could have been one of the things that Reuben was thinking of since two of his brothers were mass murderers. But when we end up compromising, trying to do a little of what is right and a little of crowd pleasing, in the end, the thing that we want to have happen that is good, it doesn't happen. And that's what we need to realize. We think, oh, oh, if I can just compromise, if I can just, you know, give in to the crowd and still try to do what's good, oh, it'll work out. It almost never does. So Reuben's trying to save Joseph by changing the plan to just throw Joseph into a pit and not killing him first. But now let's see how that plan doesn't work out. Verse 23. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah says to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. So Joseph's brothers, they first listened to Reuben. Reuben says, hey, I got a better plan than killing him and throwing him in the pit. Let's just not kill him and throw him in the pit and let him die. Okay, that sounds good. And notice what they do after they grab Joseph. He comes there. They rip off of his tunic. And then they toss him into the pit. And then they sit down and eat a meal. I mean, this just shows how brutal these guys are. I mean, imagine doing something like that to your brother, knowing that our plan is ultimately to let him rot there and die. And it's like, I'm cool with this. I can eat right after this. I'm fine with what we're doing here. And they just sit down and they have a meal. And it just shows their brutality and heartlessness towards their brother. And while they're eating lunch, they see this group of Ishmaelite traders heading down to Egypt. And all of a sudden, light bulb goes on in Judah's mind. He says, hey, guys. I got a better plan than letting our brother rot down there to death. What good does that do? I mean, we're not getting anything out of that. I mean, why does that do anything for us? We could actually benefit from him. And so instead of killing him, let's sell him as a slave. And then he has the audacity to say, for he is our brother. I mean, like, well, for he is our brother, why don't we let him free? For he is our brother, why don't we be nice to him? For he is our brother, let's just sell him into slavery for the rest of his life. And so he thinks, well, I'm not going to kill him, but you know, I don't have a problem with selling him into slavery. And once again, the other brothers think, yeah, this is a good plan. Let's do this. And so they pull Joseph out of the pits and they sell him for 20 pieces of silver to these Ishmaelite traders who take Joseph down to Egypt. Now, this is another way that Joseph is a picture of 
Jesus. Notice that Joseph is stripped of his tunic before being thrown into the pit. And Jesus was stripped of his tunic before he was placed upon the cross to be crucified. Joseph's brother sold him for 20 pieces of silver. Judas betrayed and basically sold Jesus to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph was placed in a pit to die, but was delivered from the pit. Jesus was placed in a grave after he died and was delivered from the grave. You know, Joseph's brothers thought they destroyed the dream that God gave to Joseph by selling him as a slave. Well, we're never going to bow down to him now. That dreamer's dream's never going to come true. The religious leaders thought they destroyed the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah by crucifying him. We'll never bow down and worship Jesus. We've taken care of that problem. Well, both groups were wrong. They did not stop what God's word said would happen. Joseph's brothers, as we're going to see, will eventually bow down to him. And the Bible tells us that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every single person that crucified him is one day going to bow before him. And they're going to recognize who he is, even though they rejected that and thought, oh, we've stopped it. What he claimed is never going to happen. And I bring this up because God's word about Joseph, God's word about Jesus, it came to pass. What God's word tells us is going to happen is going to happen. No matter how hard people try to get in the way of that, no matter how hard people try to stop God's plan, it's going to come together. God's word about Joseph was proved true no matter what his brothers did to him. God's word about Jesus proved true no matter what the religious leaders and the Romans did to him. And the same is true for us. God's word, his promises for us will prove true no matter who tries to get in the way of that, no matter what the enemy tries to do against that. And we need to be confident that God is capable and able to finish what he starts, to complete the work that he's done in us and to fulfill his promises to us no matter what comes against us. Joseph's brother's cruelty is not finished. They have one more person still to hurt. And the person that you would think that maybe the greatest hatred and animosity would be towards, and that's their father. The one who's clearly demonstrated, I do not love you like I love Joseph. I don't love your mothers like I loved Joseph's mother. I don't care about you in the same way I do him. And even though he's much younger than you, I've elevated him into a position of authority over you. Well, I send you out to work, he stays at home with me. You know, that's the one that you could understand they'd be upset with. Dad, this is not good. What you've done is a problem. Well, now we're going to see the anger and the frustration that they have towards their dad demonstrated in a very sinful way. Verse 29. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. It seems that 
Reuben didn't go to the lunch party after uh, he came up with a new plan. He maybe was figuring out, how am I going to go rescue Joseph from my crazy brothers? So Joseph gets placed in the pit. The brothers come up with the new plan to sell Joseph into slavery. They pull him out of the pit, and he's gone. Well, Reuben now comes back. He's thinking, all right, no one's here. Great, I'm going to fulfill my plan. I'm getting Joseph out. I'm bringing him back to dad. He looks in the pit. Joseph's not there. Now he goes to the brothers, finds out what really happens, and he says to them, the lad is no more where, and I, where shall I go? We're told that he tears his clothes. He's in mourning. He recognizes the significance of what they did, and he didn't want to be a part of this. And as a firstborn, he would have had the greatest responsibility to make sure everybody was safe. He does not want to face his dad. He says, where shall I go? And it seems that Reuben is very fearful of coming back and standing before Jacob and saying, hey, Joseph's dead. Now, obviously, he's not going to give the real reason why, but you know, he realizes my father loves him more than all of us. How brokenhearted he's going to be when he gets this news. But the other brothers, they don't seem bothered by it at all, and they don't care how their father's going to feel. They take Joseph's tunic, they kill a goat, they dip the tunic in blood, And they bring that tunic to dad and notice the question that they have the audacity to ask. We have found this tunic. Do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not? Oh, we're not sure if this one's Joseph's, even though we sold him as a slave and ripped it off his body and dipped it in blood. But hey, is it his or not? Once again, we see the cruelty of Joseph's brothers And we see that their hatred wasn't only directed to Joseph, but also to their dad. Israel recognized the tunic and he says, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Israel in mourning tears his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes. He mourns for several days. And now notice the audacity of his brothers who come to comfort him. The ones who set this all up to begin with. Oh, we'll comfort you at Joseph's passing, even though we're the ones who actually committed the crime and covered it up. But Israel refused to be comforted, and he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Israel thought that his favorite son is dead, and his conclusion to that was, I'm going to mourn until I'm dead. Until I go down to the grave, I'm going to be mourning the son that I love the most. I'm never going to get over this. And the chapter ends with verse 36 saying, Now the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Once again, I want to reiterate the reality of Joseph's innocence. We see a lot of horrible things happening to him. He hasn't done anything to deserve any of this. He's the innocent party who is just getting treated in such a horrible way. And now he has gone from favored son in his father's house to slave in Egypt. He is Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guards, slave. But something that we're going to see as we continue through the life of Joseph is even in the midst of slavery, even in the midst of accusations that aren't true, even in the midst of imprisonment and all these horrible things that he's going to suffer, 
God's with him every step of the way. And no matter where he is, God blesses him. God blesses what he does. And and I think this is something so important for us to realize because the dream's going to come to pass. And you have a dream like that, and you think, man, God's going to do something amazing with my life. And maybe we think, to get from where I am to where that dream is ultimately going to happen, it's going to be a smooth sailing road. But that's not the case with Joseph. And I have found that's not the case with most people. You know, when God speaks about completing the work that He started in our life and the things that He wants to do, you know, the reality is for most of us as Christians, there's a lot of problems that go along the way. There's a lot of difficulty. There's a lot of people that maybe do some hateful things to us. And this is what I really love about Joseph's life is he's such a wonderful example of how to respond in a godly way in the midst of all these things going against you when you're not the cause. I mean, it's one thing that we've seen with Jacob and we saw with you know Isaac, we saw with Abraham. They did things and they suffered the consequences of it. And you're like, well... <laughs> You make your bed, you invite a lie in it, you know. But here, Joseph hasn't done anything deserving of any of this, and yet he's still suffering through this. But yet God is with him. God is going to work in him and through him. And God's going to bless him. And he's going to complete what he said he would do. The dream ultimately will come to pass. And something else I want us to just think about is that Israel's family was messed up, really messed up. And yet God is able to work through these murderers, through these slave traders, through these kidnappers, through these thieves, through these adulterers. He's willing and able to work through them. He does something great through Joseph's life for his glory. And I love this because, you know, we can look at our families and think, man, I came from a pretty messed up family. God's never going to be able to do anything significant with my life. He's never going to be able to work in me or through me. Well, look at the family that Joseph came out of. I mean, none of our families, I would imagine, are that messed up. You know, none of our siblings probably want to kill us and actually wanted to and tried to and decided to sell us as slaves. You know, I mean, that family has so much going on wrong in it but yet God was able to work through them. God was able to do a great work in Joseph. And he does something amazing, as we're going to see. I won't spoil the ending for you, but God is very much able to do amazing things through messed up people and messed up families. And that brings encouragement. I hope it brings encouragement to you as you look and think, man, maybe I can never be used because of this circumstance that I've been through or this family that I've come from or or whatever, but realizing, no, God's bigger than that. And then whatever we go through, whatever we're in, He'll be with us, He'll strengthen us, He'll help us, and He'll work through us for His glory to accomplish His purposes. And it's such a wonderful thing that we're going to see through the life of Joseph. And obviously, as you've already seen, a great picture of what Jesus suffered and went through as well. So any thoughts on the start of this story here, uh, here in chapter 37?